the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, has uh, now been uh, with us for three years. It's gone through Supreme Court tests. It's uh, gone through efforts to repeal. In less than two weeks, millions of Americans who've been locked out of the insurance market are finally going to be able to get quality health care. The idea we're all in this together, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that's a value. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jason, and I am really glad to be here. Real quick, before we dive into the teaching time, I wanted to update you on Pastor Sean's mom. Many of you have been following and praying for them. I just wanted to let you know, after her 13-year battle with ovarian cancer, she passed away Friday at 523, peacefully holding the hand of her husband. And Sean and Beth are on their way out to California to have a private funeral service. They ask that you keep them in your prayer. They thank you for your warm thoughts and, and all that you've had to say. And while they grieve his mother's passing, they also celebrate the reality that she is a believer, that she was sold out for Jesus, and today she is in heaven with her Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. What is the question behind the headline? That's what this entire series headlines is all has been about. The reality that there's these headlines that seem to elevate and make their way to the top of our headlines because they seem to kind of punch a cultural button. And so we want to ask the question, what is it about this headline, this thing that really grabs our attention? What's going on behind the scenes with it? And then even more importantly, what is a Christian response to this? Which I think is important. In week one, Pastor Sean talked about the reality that in our society we seem to have become more violent. And we're reminded of that again yesterday as we hear about a shooting at a mall in Maryland, that our culture has become more violent. And one of the realities that we have landed on with that is that we no longer value human life like we used to. We have devalued people. And so we, as a result, then we have become more violent. In week two, Pastor John talked about whatever happened to Hannah Montana, and we went on with the reality that we do devalue people, but even worse, we oftentimes objectify them. We objectify them to make money or to pleasure ourselves or whatever it may be that we have objectified people, and that has hurt our culture as well. Last week, Pastor John talked about why we live in a broke or a broken government, that in our culture we have become polarized. I am right, you are wrong. We dig into our points, and it would seem that we have lost the art of negotiation. We have lost the art of conversation. We're no longer able to just come to a common understanding and do what is right for the common good. And that's not just in our politics, but we have become that way in our marriages. We have become that way in our communities. We've even become that way in our jobs, we have lost the art of conversation. This week, we get to talk about why do we care about Obamacare? And I don't think there could be a hotter topic to talk about out there. I mean, all I have to do is walk into a room and bring this one up, and I will get all sorts of emotions. I will get all sorts of conversation. In fact, during the planning of this series and so forth, we kept asking the question, are we sure we want to touch this one? Is this really one we want to do? And I remember sitting at the end of the table laughing the entire time thinking, I wonder which fool they will find to teach this one. <laughs> 
And the answer is the biggest one in the room. <laughs> we do not have to look very far, though, to ask the question, what is the question behind this headline? Because the president has really clearly laid that out for us. He has recognized it. He's a smart man. He understands the big question and has addressed it seven to eight times in speeches over the last two years. In particular, I want to highlight one he did in February 2012 at a national prayer breakfast, which the president said, part of that belief, his Christian belief, comes from my faith in the idea that I am my brother's keeper and I am my sister's keeper, that this country, as this country, we rise and fall together. Now, as he continued the speech, he told the audience that he prayed daily, that he believed his faith was just not just part of his personal life, but it was part of the formation of public policy as well, as I would really expect from anybody that was in his office. But what caught my eye was this statement, I am my brother's keeper. This is a statement taken from the Bible. And one thing I want to remind us of is before we go forward and get any further, something we reminded ourselves each week. I am not coming to, to, to you today with a Republican answer. I'm not coming to you today with a Democratic answer, a Libertarian, a Tea Party. I am not coming to you, to you today with a political answer. I'm not here to advance the cause of politics. I am, however, a pastor. And in any time somebody in the public forum, whether they are the president, whether they are a movie star, or whether they are an athlete, any time somebody quotes or references the Bible or scripture in something they do, my ears perk up and I will always begin to ask the question, is this an accurate representation of the Bible and the text and what it says? And that is what I want us to do today, because this statement, I am my brother's keeper, is a reference to a story in Genesis chapter 4. Now, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It is a book about beginnings. It is the book about where God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and he created the first two humans, Adam and Eve. He placed them in a garden together. They rebelled against God. They were expelled from the garden, and then afterwards they have two children, the oldest child's name being Cain, the youngest child's name being Abel. As Cain and Abel grew up, they began to bring offerings of worship to God. Cain's offerings were rejected by God because he was not giving God his very best. Abel's were looked upon with favor because he gave him his best portions and the first of all that he had. And so God looked with favor. Well, this angered Cain greatly. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. It will be on the screens of the campuses. It is in your worship guide as well. I encourage you to follow along. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? Cain asked this question, am I my brother's keeper? And so when the president says, I am my brother's keeper, essentially what he is doing is he is answering that question. He's saying, I believe from my faith and my perspective, the answer to this question is that I am my brother's keeper. But I want to ask you a question today, am I 
from a biblical standpoint, am I my brother's keeper? And I would like everyone real quick to take a deep breath because I humbly submit to you that I am not my brother's keeper. And I don't want to force you to agree with me. That's not the point here and so forth. But I am inviting you on a conversation for us to walk through this and understanding what is going on here in this dialogue and in these pages. And it's okay if you disagree with me, but just follow along if you could for a moment. To start this story, we need to simply ask, let's find out a little more about Abel and let's find out a little more about Cain. So if we go up to Genesis 4, verse 2, we see this real quick. It says, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Other translations of the Bible say that uh, Abel was a keeper of flocks and even other translations of the Bible say that he was a shepherd of flocks. That's because the word used there, the ancient Hebrew word is ra'ah, and it's used to mean the same things, both keeper and shepherd. We see this many times in the Old Testament, but one in particular is in a chapter and verse that many of us know well. It's Psalm 23, 1, and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Ra'ah, same word used here for keeper and there. But this also gets us to one of our very first points and our first fill-in for the day. According to the Bible, the Lord is our shepherd. According to the scriptures, God the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. The second thing we need to ask is what do we know about shepherds and keepers? What was their job? What did they do? And the first thing is this, a shepherd herds animals. They tell them where to go. They tell them what to do. They tell them how to live. These animals rely on them for everything. They herd animals. The second thing I want to remind you about a shepherd is a shepherd rules over the sheep because they are animals. This is part of the creative order. God left instructions with Adam in Genesis chapter 1 where he said to him, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. As humankind, our distinct role is to rule over the animal kingdom. That's what we're given. But nowhere in those instructions does it say we are to rule over other humans. There is a distinction. As shepherds, their flock their sheep, their cattle, whatever it may be, exist for them. They exist for their purposes and their consumption, whether that's milk to drink or whether that is meat to eat or whether that is hides to wear or whatever they do, they exist, their flock exists for their consumption and their needs. Now, another point I want to bring out to, in this passage is this. If you read further in it, at some point, you will notice God never answers Cain's question. Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? God doesn't answer the question in the text. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. The first one is because Cain was being a smart, you know what? And if you don't know, know what, think donkey. And you'll be on the right track. I mean, have you ever thought about how arrogant 
and crazy it is to look at the creator of the universe, the king of king and the lord of lords, and to be a smart aleck to him. That's nuts. And Cain does that, and that shows you a little bit about the mind of Cain. Not only did he not respect God, but he thought of his fellow human beings as animals, and he treated his brother as such. The second reason is the key to answering this question and understanding the question, am I my brother's keeper, lies right in the text we read just a bit ago. So I want to encourage us to read again Genesis 4, verses 8 through 9, what we saw there. And if you are in your worship guide and you have a pen or pencil, I want to encourage you to underline every time you see the word brother or circle, whatever you want, but every time you see the word brother, circle it or underline it. So let's read that again. Now Cain said to his brother... Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper. You see, we have put the emphasis in the past on the word keeper, but the text very clearly says the emphasis and the word to pay attention here is brother. And here lies the secret that we have to unfold. My dear friends, I humbly, humbly come to you and tell you this. We are not our brother's keeper because our brother is not sheep for us to herd. They are not animals. We are Though we are, the text says, our brother's brother, which means we are family and we are to treat them as equals and we are to treat them with dignity. They are not sheep for us to herd. They are our equals. They are our brothers. They are our sisters and we are to treat them accordingly. I am only my brother's keeper if my brother is my sheep. Now, I have an older brother, and I love him dearly, but I am not his sheep, and neither are you. And this is important and subtle, but it has to do with a posture in which we engage other people. We are not designed to herd, to rule other people. People do not exist for our purposes and our needs. And the story of the Bible is that we are from the same family. The name Eve means the mother of all. It means that we are all from the same lineage. We are all from the same person. Therefore, we are all brothers and sisters, and we are called to love each other as brothers and sisters, not sheep. There is a difference between viewing people as cattle and herding them and living a life in equality as a community. And there is a big difference on that. And this understanding, getting your arms around this can have some serious repercussions on how you engage the world and the people around you. It can have serious repercussions on how you engage in developing public policy. And it can have serious repercussions as a church, how we engage missions throughout the world. As we go out as a church, do we see people in other countries and other places as cattle for us to herd, to bring our ways and our ideas and force that on them? Or do they exist as our fellow brothers and sisters as equals for us to come alongside and to teach them and to do life together. There's a big difference. And yes, my dear friends, as a church, we are called, we are not allowed to turn a blind side to the hurting and the lost. We are not allowed to ignore the marginalized. We are not allowed to just walk away from those who are in need. And we are not allowed to forget those who are hurting. As Christians, we are not allowed to do that. We are called to gauge that. We are the image of God in the world to bring hope and healing. But in those efforts of going out and helping the poor, we are 
also not allowed to create a culture of dependence where people serve us. Amen? Amen. There's a big difference. And when we talk about this thing called Obamacare or any other policy or so forth, what I'm essentially saying is something that you've probably heard many times in your life. I'm asking what is the difference between feeding somebody a fish and teaching them how to fish? And there's a big difference. And as Christians, we are called to go out and teach people how to fish, not create a culture of dependence where they rely on us for every living thing. The Bible has a word for that, and it was called slavery. And we are not called, the good news is not come get enslaved. We are to bring hope and healing to the world. There's a story in the New Testament about Jesus where he feeds people fish. It's in John chapter 6. And a real quick lead up into that story is Jesus crosses over a lake and he encounters a multitude. The Bible says 5,000 men. We can only assume there are women and children as well. He begins to teach them and as the day goes, he asks his disciples, how are we going to feed these people? And his disciples look at him and they say, it would take half a year's wages just to give them a bite to eat. And Jesus is, of course, testing them. So they find a young boy who has five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes that, he begins to pray over it, and then he starts to give it out to the crowd. The Bible says, as much as they wanted. When he was done doing that, he asked his disciples to go pick up the leftovers. And when they were finished, there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. It was an amazing miracle. It was an amazing thing that Jesus did. And in Sunday school growing up, we used to love talking about this story because isn't it great how Jesus fed the multitude? What I don't remember growing up is talking about the second half of this story because this is not where it ended. We, the story continues, and we don't talk about that much, but that's where I want us to engage the story, and that's in John chapter 6, verse 22. It says this, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away. And then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Notice this next day when they come looking for food again, Jesus doesn't automatically just feed them. He begins to challenge them. He begins to raise the bar on them. He tells them, work for food that endures. Get to work. And what's that food that endures? It's that food that goes out into the world and brings hope and healing, salvation, and everlasting life to others. He's saying, listen, there's work to be done, and it's not simply about filling your belly. But many of us get stuck. We don't understand that. What's going on here? And I want to draw this out. So inside your worship guide, there's a diagram that I want us to go through together about what's going on here in this story. 
The reality is that everyone's on a spiritual journey of some sort, and it's unique to all of us. But as Christians, there are some milestones, some markers that we all share together along the way on the journey, and I want to highlight some of those today if we could. For many of us, you may be here today, or there was a point in your life when you were exploring. Perhaps you're here today, you have questions. You're trying to find out who this God is and what he means in your life. And is there something bigger than me out there? And I want to tell you my hope and my prayer is that this is always a safe place for you to come ask those questions, to find those answers, to explore. We want you to continue to come. We want you to continue to do that. Ask those questions. We'd like to give you some of the answers. But yes, it's wonderful. God says and the Bible says God rewards those who earnestly seek him. But for many of us, after exploring, there comes a point where we step into the work of God and decide to be a follower of Jesus. I say that we have an awakening. God shines his light and we respond to that light. For many of us, it starts with a prayer and it simply says, Dear Lord, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. Come into my heart. Take residence. I want to follow you. And we begin this journey to understand this new life that Jesus is calling us to and to understand this kingdom that he is bringing and what our part is in it. And that's an amazing thing to do. And while you're there asking questions here and while you're asking questions here about your new life, I realize that the church exists to feed me. That is the purpose of the church at this time. And at this time, Jesus is your Savior. And many of us have been there at some point. But there comes a point for many of us, John Wesley said this was a time of the warming of his heart. There was a time for me too when Jesus wasn't just my Savior, but I began to realize he was not only that, but Jesus is also Lord. He is King of my life. He's calling the shots and I need to obey him, trust and obey and step in even further into what he's doing. So Jesus is not only Savior, but he is Lord of my life. And the key to understanding that Jesus is Lord in my life is you come, you become very aware that your life is one of surrendering. Surrendering your will and your way to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, realizing that all you have, all you do, all that you say belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you begin surrendering those pieces of your life that you're still holding on to and give them to the Lordship of Jesus. That's another step many of us take in our lives. And at that point, a light bulb goes off and we realize that not only does the church exist to feed me, but I exist to feed others. And this is what Jesus was challenging them to in the passage. He was saying, yesterday I fed you, but today I'm raising the bar on you. Today I'm challenging you that you exist to work for eternal food, food that's in keeping with my spirit and my kingdom. You exist to feed others as well. You exist beyond yourself. And from that surrendering and learning to feed others, you then learn about duplicating. 
that you realize you exist to duplicate. And this is what Jesus was teaching when he taught them and said, go out into all the nations, baptize them, and make disciples. That is how this works. We are disciples that create disciples that create disciples. That is how Christianity is supposed to operate. Through our exploring, we have an awakening. From our awakening, we begin surrendering. And from surrendering, we understand that we are duplicating. But to get there to there, we have to understand that the church doesn't simply exist to feed me. The church also is challenging me to go out, live beyond myself, and to feed others. But the reality is, is most Christians get stuck somewhere right here in between these two. In fact, a church in Chicago has spent the last 10 years polling about 5,000 other churches to ask this question, where do we think people are on their spiritual journey in the church? And what they found out is most people, 80% of all Christians land somewhere between this idea of, I have embraced that Jesus is my savior. I love this forgiveness. I love this idea of heaven, but I have not fully surrendered to the Lord. And what we have is a bunch of people who are forgiven, but have never been set free. And they're stuck right here. Why do we get stuck right here? Watch a video with me real quick. I think that'll highlight part of the reason. Fix it in a second. <laughs> he said he could fix it. <laughs> All right. All right. That's more like it. He says he can fix it. <laughs> Many of us get stuck on an escalator. And it seems so obvious what the answer is, right? I mean, just walk. But sometimes in the noise of life, we can't see it. I want to propose there's a couple reasons why. The first one is because we expect others to take care of our problem. And if we're going to get stuck here, and we're having a feed me mentality, there's not another class I can add. There's not another change to the music I can do. There's not a better sermon I can speak. Those are all healthy. But if you're going to get here to here, it starts with you surrendering and understanding you exist for others. It starts with you. You need to take a step and trust and obey. 
And the second reason is we just don't know how to take that step. Out in the lobby, we talk about these often. You may even be tired of it. We say connect, grow, serve, give, and tell. We call these dashboard indicators. But that's how they're meant to work. If you're wondering, what is my next step? That's what they're for. To look at it and go, connect. Am I coming to church on a regular basis? Am I connecting with others? Am I in a small group doing life with others? Am I in a community? Or am I an island to myself? Your next step might be more regular to church or finding a group to be involved with, which goes along with grow. Are you the same person on Monday you claim to be here on Sunday? What are you and who are you when nobody's looking? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Inside your worship guide was something we talked about earlier called winter connection points. The main purpose of these classes is not to impart knowledge on you. We hope to do that and we hope you learn something here. The main point of winter connection groups is for you to do life with other people in community, to get to know them, to have accountability, and to know that people love you. That's the point and I want to challenge you to get involved with that. Where are you serving? Are you in children's ministry, youth ministry, usher, greeter? There's many areas, tech ministry in this church. How can you help? But not just in the church. Are you serving in your community? Are you serving at your job? Are you serving throughout the world? There's many opportunities out there. Are you giving? Are you a generous person? That one always makes us uncomfortable. Inside your worship guide, there's something that looks like this, global outreach. And what I want to ask some of you is, not too long ago, we gave pledges and promises on Global Promise, and I want to ask, how are you doing with your pledge and your promise in this? How are you doing with your general tithe? When I look inside the bulletin, I'm well aware we are 9% down on budget. I'm well aware. Are you being a generous person? And are you telling have you taken the bold step to invite those people around you into this new life that Jesus has called you to? Are you actively creating disciples that create disciples that create disciples? Are you duplicating or are you here? Where are you in the journey? Which gets us to our now what moment? We exist for God and we exist for others and if we're going to make a difference in this world, I'm going to need a whole bunch of Christians who are here to be moving this direction. I need a whole bunch of people to get unstuck so that we can go out into the world and feed others. But I also want to remind us as we go back to understanding what we are talking about today, how we engage the world and how we feed others is vitally important. We do not go out into the world to herd them. We go out to come alongside them, which gets us to our first of our five points I'd like to remind us of as we go out. The first one is this, walk alongside each other. We do not exist to herd people. They are not cattle for our control and for our purposes. We're called to live together in community as equals. I am my brother's brother. We are called to radical love. People do not need our pity. They need our love. 
We are seed planters that plant our seed out there. We're called to plant our seed, and God grows the seeds, not us. And sometimes our seed falls on good soil, and sometimes it falls on bad soil, but the Bible doesn't ask us to, to, to distinguish. It says, throw your seed out, be loving, plant your seeds of love wherever you go. It is God's harvest to grow and to reap, not yours. Our job is to plant seeds. Engage everyone with dignity. Engage everyone with dignity. Everybody is royalty. We are all sons and daughters of God. Do you think of people in those terms that they are royalty? Young man, when you take that young lady out on a date, you are taking one of God's princesses out on a date and you are to treat her accordingly. When you see that person on the street hurting, when you see that fellow person that seems like they're making the same mistake over and over again and it's just frustrating you, remember they are royalty and treat them with dignity. The next one we don't need to flesh out too much is simply teach people to fish. Don't just feed them a fish. Create systems and structures in their lives and ways for them to learn how to fish so that they can maintain their dignity, so that they can go forward and have lasting structures that they can pass on to the next generation that help grow them and make them better and better and better. Don't just feed them a fish. And the last one, live in the tension. My dear friends, there will always be Republican for now. There will always be Democrat or whatever. There will always be rich. There will be poor. We are called as Christians to live in the tension. It is not how we avoid the tension that matters. It is how we engage the tension because on this side of eternity, you cannot avoid tension. Tension is a part of life. And how you engage that tension is important. Am I my brother's keeper? I humbly submit to you I am not. Because my brother is not my herd. My brother is not my cattle. My brother is not my animal to control. However, I am my brother's brother. And when others see me at work, the reflection of God, they are to see this living God bringing hope and healing in all that I do. And so when I engage my brother, I am to engage my brother as an equal part of the family that I love. I am my brother's brother. And so as we finish this discussion on Obamacare, I realize there will be many discussions you will have outside of this. You will have many discussions with those around you. I want to simply remind you this. As Christians, we never, ever turn a blind's eye on the hurt. We never turn the blind's eye on those who are in need. We do not ignore the poor. We do not ignore the downcast. We are called to lovingly engage them. We are not allowed to do that, and we certainly don't do it to save a buck. But in the process of engaging them, in the process of feeding the world, in the process of going out to make a difference in the name of God, we also never, ever, ever create a culture of dependence where we rule over people and they exist for our purposes. People are not animals and we are not called to herd them. We are called to teach them how to fish. And my dear friend, where are you on your spiritual journey? Are you one of these 80%? Maybe you're just exploring today, and I challenge you to take this step into the work of Jesus. Where are you? 
And what do you need to do to take the next step? Because I need a whole bunch of Christians out there who are ready to engage the world and feed others so that we can make a difference in this world and bring the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ really did bring hope and healing, and it's available for you. Let's pray. Dear God, tough subject today. As we engage it, Lord, may we do so with humility and love. May we never ignore the hurt and the lost and the weary. May we always see with eyes of grace our fellow brothers and sisters, our equals, your beautiful creation, and may we engage them as such to find answers and solutions in their lives through Jesus Christ that can bring that hope and healing to all that are around. Love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.